I'm excited today. We are continuing on our Abundant Love sermon series. And, and what we've essentially said is this is a sermon series that piggybacks on our mission. Our mission is to know Jesus and make him known. And that's not just something we put on the wall around here. It's something we actually uh, believe. Uh, it's not just in our heads. It's in our hearts and hopefully in our hands as we live out the Christ life. And so in order to know Jesus, we have to kind of study him. We have to look into his life. We have to see how he lived. And if we look at how Jesus lived, my, my hunch is that we will learn how to make him known to others as well. Not only will we grow in closeness to Christ, but we will then overflow into the lives of others. And so uh, this whole month, we're in Luke chapter 5. And what we're seeing is Jesus's abundant love on display. And so we're doing this whole month, this journey through Luke 5, as he's kind of making his way through these little towns and cities around the Sea of Galilee. And he's just teaching. He's teaching, he's healing, he's among the people. And if we look at it through, through, through right filter, what we're going to see is not only is this how we learn the character of God, but he's also modeling the way we might move around the cities and towns of our own lives and through the people that we are connected to. So today we're going to be talking about desperate love, and we're going to put up on the screen in Luke chapter 5, starting in verse 17. You feel free to read along as I do. It says, on one of these days, as he, Jesus, as Jesus was teaching... There were Pharisees and teachers of the law sitting by who had come from every village of Galilee and Judea and from Jerusalem. And the power of the Lord was with him to heal. And behold, men were bringing on a bed a man who was paralyzed, and they sought to bring him in and lay him before Jesus. But finding no way to bring him in because of the crowd, they went up on the roof and they let him down with his bed through the tiles into the midst before Jesus. And when he saw their faith, he said, man, your sins are are forgiven you. And the scribes and the Pharisees began to question. They said, who is this that speaks blasphemies? Who can forgive sins but God only? And when Jesus perceived their questionings, he answered them, why do you question in your hearts? Which is easier to say, your sins are forgiven you, or to say, rise and walk? But that you may know the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he said to the man who was paralyzed. I say to you, rise, take up your bed, and go home. And immediately he rose before them and took up that on which he lay and went home, glorifying God. And amazement seized them all, and they glorified God and were filled with awe, saying, We have seen strange things today. Jesus is healing and preaching, and the crowds are growing so much so that people are coming from a multiple-day walk, a multiple-day's travel, to come and hear him and see with their own eyes what what the word is going out around him. There's some indication in the text that this is in Capernaum, which we said last week was a city of about 1,500. And so you pick your favorite city of 1,500 that you uh, get in your own mind. And what we established last week is this is not a really important place. It's no seat of government. It's no seat of importance. It's just another little dot on the map. In a town of 1,500, the question is how fast does word spread? Pretty quickly. And so as word is spreading, as Jesus is healing and Jesus is teaching, people start gathering like there is a phenomenon happening. We need to be a part of it. The scripture says he's teaching in a house. And so if we're going to do this right, if we're going to look at this story with right eyes, I need us to actually do an actual thing right now. So a lot of us show up on Sunday mornings and we are here uh, to either check a religious box, because this is what you're supposed to do if you're a good religious person, or we show up and we wait for that one nugget of moral guidance to get us on our, our trip in the next part of the journey. I need more moral guidance so I can be a better moral person. And I'd like you to turn that part of your brain off. The party that shows up here to check the religious box or to get some moral guidance, we're going to turn that off for a minute. And what I want you to switch into, I want you to be a follower of Jesus. 
but I want you to have a curiosity about this Jesus. Not a what is Jesus going to tell me that I might add to my moral toolkit that I can be a better person tomorrow so I can please people around me or be a better father, husband, daughter, mother, sister. I just want you to be a curious onlooker. I want you to place yourself in the story as Jesus is teaching and the house is filling. For one day, let's be the curious followers of Christ that are peeking around the corner, that are trying to get a look at him, that are trying to figure out what is he doing and what is he saying and what does it mean about who he is and who we're supposed to be. And so I want you to picture a house. It says he's teaching in a house. Picture a house. You have the house in your mind? Got vinyl siding, maybe some brick, a two-car garage. Okay, I'd like you to erase that house, bulldoze that house. Never think of that house again. We're in first century Capernaum. So you have to get rid of all your 21st century Western ideals. There's no cul-de-sacs. There's no stop signs. Show an aerial view of modern-day Capernaum. This is some ruins that have been found that... The white square is a 4th century synagogue built on top of a 1st century synagogue. And then next to it, where that kind of neon-looking palm tree sits, that square, that's actually just the ruins of of a 1st century house. So what I'd like you to take a look at and notice, these are the walls of the home. If you you look at it a little closer, you you notice there is no great room, there is no um, open floor plan. Why? Because there's no such thing as a steel I-beam to run through it. And so what you have in the first century is you have a room only as wide as we can find a timber to cross it on which to set roofing material. And so you have walls that come up, stone walls, and then you have a roof made of timber. And so if you have a tree that's eight feet long, and that's the longest tree piece of timber you can get, then guess how wide your roof will be? It will not be, I mean, your, your room will not be wider than eight feet because we don't have steel I-beams and we don't have the modern construction technology. And so this is what a house looks like. It's a series of small rooms and hallways. And this would have been the home for a family, not in the way we think of nuclear family in America in 2020. This is a family. This is mom and dad and aunt and uncle and grandma and grandpa and niece and nephew. It's all of them. The family lives together. And so as we look at this picture, we start to get a sense as Jesus is teaching in this house and you and I, the curious onlooking followers of Christ, are watching, what we realize is that Jesus is teaching in a house like this, there's no auditorium that seats 300. There are people crammed into hallways and looking around corners. There are people sneaking looks between shoulders and heads and trying to get a peek and a listen as to what this Jesus is saying in a room somewhere in this house. Now we're going to have a little aside here. I'm going to point out there's a square that we're going to cover in uh, yellow. We're going to circle it in yellow. There it is. This is an area. It's a courtyard of the house. It's a really common uh, piece of architecture in this world. And this square is where the animals were kept. And so if you were in a family, you would have an animal or two if you were pretty wealthy, actually. A sheep or two, a goat or two. You'd have a couple of animals. And the animals were kept there. And they're uh, all over... Modern Israel, when they go and they find these archaeological sites, they'll find mangers in these areas. Maybe you'll see where I'm going. When we picture Jesus being born in a manger, what's the picture we have? Jesus teaching in a house is in a nice three-bedroom, two-and-a-half-bath house with a two-guard garage, and it's not that. When we think of Jesus in a manger, we think of Jesus in an A-framed, barn-like structure out on a rolling prairie, don't we? And there's a really bright star above it, isn't there? And the the hay is kind of golden, and in reality, and I'm not, I'm not trying to challenge and say this is absolutely what the pure reality of it was, but the scripture would allow that Jesus was born in a manger, that there wasn't room for them, and so they had to 
They had to stay out and they had him in a manger. And in the family house, this is where the sheep would have been kept. And there was a couple mangers in this one particular that they're just stone little troughs where you would have put the feed. And so the sheep that would have been there by itself is now joined by a Mary and a Joseph and a Jesus. And so maybe the family is gathered around. Maybe it is a communal experience. And maybe because there wasn't room for him to stay, there may have had to just make room in in the covered courtyard where the manger was. And you start getting a grittier picture of the heart of Christ. And I don't know that that's either this nor that. But what I want to do is start piquing curiosity and going, we cannot simply accept the mind's eye view that we got from 1500 or 1800 or 2019 where somebody constructed a picture of a Jesus that sanitized and consumerized. It's not that. It's upon us to take a look and go, but what was it really like? And what was he really like? And what does that mean about what we're supposed to be like? That's a side number one. A side number two, while I have this picture up, I figure I might as well tell you. In John 14, 2, the Bible's um, working through a couple things, and Jesus is speaking to his followers, and Jesus says, in my Father's house, he's kind of talking about this, this precursor of heaven. In my Father's house, there are many rooms. Some translations say there are many mansions, which I don't like that translation very much because the, the word means rooms or dwellings. In my Father's house, there are many rooms. You have to think Jesus is walking by He doesn't have the McMansion line suburban streets that we have. He's not walking down our streets going, look at all the many mansions in my father's house. This is what the first century looked like. And so when Jesus says in my father's house, there are many rooms, he's likely talking about a bunch of six by six rooms covered in straw and mud. And he's looking going, if it weren't true, I wouldn't tell you so. And when we think of heaven, when we think of eternity, when we think of what's next, I was at a funeral a few weeks ago and an amazing woman was being spoken of lovingly by everyone there and, and someone made mention that they didn't want to live on her street when they got to heaven because her mansion was going to be way bigger than theirs because she was such a great person. My heart broke a little bit because we missed it. Because in my father's house there are many rooms that when we, when we find out what is next, it's going to be together, that the family lives in a unit together, that there are many rooms but we're all connected. It's a community, not a race of morality to see who can get the biggest, most gilded mansion. It's something wholly different. So Jesus says, in my Father's house, there are many rooms. And we think, oh, room to stretch out. And what it might mean is room to get together with brothers and sisters and live as one, finally, in unity. Why do I go into all this? Because we have to be curious. We have to peek our head around the walls of the first century and try to find Jesus, not in our uh, modern imagination, but in his ancient reality. Too many of us are aiming for nice moral dwellings. Jesus is inviting us to something wholly gritty. Come back to our story. These friends have their, their friend on a paralytic. He's paralytic. They have him on a mat, and they're trying to figure out how to get into the house, and they can't get into the house because how are you going to get much less yourself into one of these corridors and into this crowded room with Jesus? How are you going to get your friend who's paralyzed on his mat? And they realize it's worthless. They can't get him in to see Jesus, and they have a better idea. They climb on the roof. We have a picture of an artist's representation of what this might have looked like. This is Capernaum by somebody's artistic rendering. And you'll see there's stairs heading up to the roofs. There's stairs and wooden ladders. This is common that the roof was about six inches of, of straw and mud that was caked into a hardened layer. And so they would use it for drying things. They would use it for an extra place to live because there just wasn't a lot of space. 
And so most houses had a way up to the roof. And so this says that these guys take their friend up onto the roof. And you can imagine them getting up on the roof and trying to figure out what room in that labyrinth that Jesus was teaching in. And it says that they slid him down, they lowered him down through the tiles, which is to say that this might have been a wealthy person's house who had ceramic tiles over their mud and straw roof. But either way, they had to tear the tiles back in one way or another. They're then digging through mud and straw six inches worth until they're into somebody's house, big enough hole that they can lower their paralytic friend in. How many acts of desperation do you see in this story? We mostly see one. These friends who drop their friend into the the home to be healed, but I think there might be two They're so desperate to get him in to see Jesus. They dig through the mud and straw. And think about this. They absolutely ruin somebody's house. The next time it rains, it's going to take a long time to patch that. And the patch, if you've ever patched a roof, it never quite holds. Imagine patching it with mud and straw. They've ruined someone's house. They're desperate enough to get their friend healed that they ruin the house. They airdrop their paralyzed friend in. And I would ask you the question, when have you felt this level of desperation? so desperate that you don't care what it costs. When have you felt that? Some of you know I donated a lung to my sister in a living donor lung transplant 20 years ago. She was 12, I was 19. The doctor said the only way that she's going to make it is she needs a transplant, but she needs it now. And so we all got tested, and I gave my left lung. Essentially, my dad gives his right. They open us up, they take it out, they pop it in her, good to go. The interesting thing for our purposes today is there was a nurse. Her name was Anne. She was assigned to me. She was permanently assigned to me for the month, the 30 days leading up to the transplant surgery itself. Her job was to convince me not to do it. I had put my hand up. I'll do this. She deserves to live. I want to be a part of this. Take me. Take my lungs. Take both of them. Take a kidney. I don't care. Whatever you want. And they said, well, that's all well and good, son. But um, we have someone assigned to you. Her name is Anne. She's going to call you every day. And her job is to convince you not to do this. Why? Because in these sorts of situations, there's a high sense of obligation that family or friends will feel obligated to do something, or if they don't do it, they'll know that they'll get the wrath of those who, who love their, their loved one mutually, and, oh, I just kind of don't, don't have a choice. I have to do it. And she said, I am here so that you don't have to do it if you don't want to do it. This has to be something you choose, because ethically, the survival rates are not high enough that we can allow you to do this out of obligation. Oh. So she would call every single day. And I would say, hello. And she would say, hey, it's Anne. And I'd go, hey, Anne, what's going on? She goes, well, you know, you could die in this surgery. (laughs) Yep. Yep. Anne, you told me that yesterday. It's a really good way to start a conversation, but what's going on with you? She goes, nothing, nothing much, nothing much. Also, I need to let you know your sister could die And you're going to be stuck in the hospital and you won't get to go to her funeral. That's a real possibility too. Because like half of the people who get this surgery, the recipients, half of them aren't making it multiple weeks. So just so you know, is that okay? Yeah, yeah, and that's a real cheery thought. Appreciate that too. That's cool. And then she would remind me that if any part of me felt obligated and not like this was my will and my voluntary choice, if any part of me felt obligated they were happy to make up a fake diagnosis that ruled me out as a donor. They say, no one will ever know that you weren't a match. No one will, or that you were a match and chose not to. No one will ever know that you opted out. No one will ever know that you weren't comfortable, that you were scared, that whatever. No one will ever know. 
We will make up any number of things, a blood issue, a heart thing, a brain thing. We'll give you the flu. You can have whatever you want. We'll make something up and we will say that he is no longer a fit donor and we'll go down the list and find someone else. And no one will ever know that it was you who said, I just really don't want to do it. She goes, so you just need to know you're safe with me. But my job is to make sure that you don't do this out of any reason other than your own will and volition. And I'd say, thank you so much. And she'd go, I'll talk to you tomorrow. And I go, I can't wait. She was asking, are you doing this because you have to or because you want to? Is it obligation or is it desire? Is it a sense of duty or is it a true desirous desperation for your sister? Because there's a big difference between I sort of have to and I can't imagine not. There's a big difference. And desperation is always the result of desire. Apply that throughout your life. Apply it to what you see. Desperation is always the result of desire. When we want something bad enough, then we will go to any means necessary to see it done. Friends claw through roof. Man donates lung. It's desperation. Things that don't seem normal or natural, things that seem to have a high cost or a high risk, they no longer feel risky in the, fact, in, in, in the light of true desire. Their desire for their friend, I think, in this story is stunning. They're risking a lot. And then I love this. They get their friend in, they drop their friend in in front of Jesus, and everybody's got to be going, wait, what is happening here? And in the stunned silence of this paralytic being lowered in front of Jesus, he has this kind of record scratch moment where if it's a movie, the music is swelling, and it's like, er, Nope. And Jesus looks at him and he's like, I got one for you. He does a little crossover dribble and all the Pharisees' ankles break and then he tells them this. Man, your sins are forgiven. And these guys on the roof have to just be dying. Like, we just ruined somebody's house because we thought he was going to heal. And then he said, their sins are forgiven and they're, you know, they're patching the thing up, trying to run as fast as they can. And everybody, the, the Pharisees are whispering and murmuring. And the whole thing Start. you can't do that. You can't just say that. And what does that even mean? Man, your sins are forgiven. There's this scene in, in Monty Python, the Holy Grail, which is, uh, let's date ourselves a little bit. Where, where King Arthur is riding through. Well, he's not riding, he's, he's hopping and there's a person with coconuts. You have to see the film. But... He comes up to these peasants and he, they say, who are you? And he says, I'm your king. And they're like, I didn't vote for you. What do you mean? Anybody can just say I'm king. And they go through this whole um, sort of lewd, hilarious exchange. But the point was, that you, like, anybody can just walk around with coconuts and say, I'm king and pretend to be riding a horse. That doesn't mean anything. King? Okay, whatever. And that's what the Pharisees have to be thinking. They're looking at Jesus and they're like, your sins are forgiven. Okay, you know, anybody can just say your sins are forgiven. I can say anything I want. It doesn't make it real. And so the murmuring begins, and you can sense it in the crowd as it, the murmuring starts. It's the same thing. I sense it at the Apple Butter Festival every year. God bless the Apple Butter Festival in Grand Rapids. I don't know why we still go, but people like it. I always end up at the Kids Pavilion, which is what they call it, but it's a parking lot. And we sit on benches in the parking lot, and then every year somehow we get there at the perfect time for this magician, a kid's magician, no less who is 90% bad jokes and 10% bad magic. And all the parrots sitting there don't know why they're sitting there. And every time he tells a bad pun or he pulls another, you know, tissue out of a hat and the kids are like, well, this is amazing. The rest of us are going, oh gosh, why are we here? And the murmuring starts, do you think he's getting paid for this? Do you think he enjoys this? I don't know. What's happening here? And that's the murmuring. You see the Pharisees like, man, your sins are forgiven. Look at this guy. 
what are we doing? We came from Judea for this? So this guy to just start spouting off? Go back to the scripture, Luke 5, 22. Jesus knew exactly what they were thinking. And he said, why all this gossipy whispering? Which is simpler, to say, I forgive your sins, or to say, get up and start walking? And pause it there. Jesus gives them a riddle, doesn't he? Jesus says, which is simpler, to say, I forgive your sins, or get up and start walking? Which is, which is simpler? Which is the easier thing to do? Because they're sitting here going, oh, so easy. Anybody can do that. It doesn't mean anything. It goes, really? Doesn't it? And I'd like to believe, I don't know, the scripture doesn't say this. This is my version. I'd like to believe he leaves a long pregnant pause for them to kind of look at each other and the murmuring to die down. Then he says this, well, just so it's clear that I'm the son of man and authorized to do either or both. And now he speaks directly to the paraplegic. He says, get up, take your bedroll and go home. And without a moment's hesitation, he did it. He got up, he took his blanket, he left for home, giving glory to God the whole way. The people rubbed their eyes incredulous and then also gave glory to God. Awestruck, they said, we've never seen anything like that. Jesus says, just so you know who I am, just so you know I can, get up and go home. And here's where I think that Jesus allows this riddle to sit because he's told them which is easier, which is harder, to forgive his sins or to tell him to walk. And now that he's done both, the question still lingers in the air. And at the moment, they think it's clear to them. They are thinking anyone can say, you're forgiven. But this walking thing, that's when their minds were blown. Whoa, he really did heal. Jesus knows they can't understand the fullness that they got the answer wrong. Because the momentary healing is nothing compared to the healing that is to come. And last week, we saw that Jesus healed a leper. Remember the story that Jesus reaches out. It says Jesus stretches out his hand to touch the leper. Jesus has a stretched out hand, a proactive initiating love that reaches out to heal the leper. I like to think it's a kind of a beautiful mirrored picture where now the people have stretched out their hand. In response to Jesus stretching out his hand with an initiating love, the people are now bringing their friends and those who need healing, and they're stretching out initiating on behalf of their friends and loved ones. Our response, I would say, if you kind of zoom out to Jesus's initiating proactive love is to turn around and be people of initiating proactive love love. So he heals the leper, and then this week he heals the paralytic. And the way he does it physically is the same way that he does it spiritually, which is something we don't see if we're just looking for moral guidance and for a nice little take-home to write on the fridge. What we don't see is that Jesus makes the leper clean because he's going to take on all of his uncleanliness. Jesus can command the paralyzed man to walk because Jesus took on his infirmity. Jesus became immobile. You fast forward a few pages in your Bible and you realize that Jesus literally and willingly was nailed to a cross in a moment of voluntary paralysis so that the paralyzed man could know mobility, so that we, the spiritually paralyzed and broken, could know and be reawakened to his love and his life and his abundance. That every single sin is being paid for in real time. Every single healing is not simply a healing out of the ether. There is a cost being paid. And so when I ask, how many acts of desperation do you see in this story? The answer is clearly two. One is the men dig through the roof. But the second one is more profound. It's more subtle, but more profound. We see the desperation of Jesus' love. And it's being brought to wholeness and being made manifest right in front of our eyes that God's only begotten son in the small fishing towns and villages around the Sea of Galilee, his desperation brings him to us. And it leads him to begin to give his life away in bits and pieces. 
because your sins are forgiven is not an easy thing to say. There's a binding that happens in that moment. Jesus is binding himself to something in that moment. For Jesus to wipe the, the, the slate of sin clean means that the punishment due for the sin has to be paid for still. He's taken on an IOU. A few weeks ago in the church parking lot, our car got hit. Member on member violence. Our bumper got hit. So our bumper is crumpled and someone else's car is a little crumpled. And so a wrong was done. A sin was committed, right? The bumper is now bruised. Now I can walk out and go, your sins are forgiven. But the bumper doesn't change. The status of the car is unchanged. The only thing that changes is if somebody agrees to pay to fix the bumper. So we do the insurance thing and the insurance is now fixing the bumper. But you see, someone had to pay. And guess what? The insurance is really just somebody else having paid premiums long enough that they, actually, they paid for the bumper. The sinner paid for the bumper. Your sins are forgiven didn't fix anything. Every sin must be rightly paid for. Every wrong in the scales of justice has to be made right. Everything has a cost. And so when Jesus heals, when Jesus walks through the world healing, when Jesus walks through the world forgiving, he's not simply waving a magic wand. He is taking on the cost to himself that will be borne out on the cross. So you and I, we look at these stories, we're like, isn't that cool? He healed the guy. And Jesus is going to be willingly immobilized, willingly paralyzed so that the paralytic can walk. So you and I who are broken can be made whole. Jesus will be made broken. That we are giving Jesus our sins and he is taking them on and paying the price for them. And we don't see it because we don't look because it's a nice moral story. And if we can just get a little how-to about how to get through my week and stress less, we're happy. And it's not the point of the story. The point is that Jesus came to remove from you all that makes you unclean. And in order to do it, he became unclean on our behalf. In order to do it, he became paralyzed. He became broken. He became torn so that you and I would no longer be. Every forgiveness is a weight lifted from the forgiven and a weight placed on Christ. Every time, every forgiveness, every healing is placed on the back of Christ as he carries his way through his life. In this way, Jesus has the most beautiful, desperate act in the history of humanity. Desperation recognizes that rescue comes at a high cost and acts anyway. Jesus knows what he's doing. He knows what the cost will be. He knows that it will come to him. And he acts anyway. Jesus gets the call that says, hey, this isn't going to end well for you if you go through with this. Are you sure? And he says, man, your sins are forgiven and you can walk. I've got both of them. We view Jesus as this clinical savior. Knows what he's doing. He knows what's coming. He's just slowly unveiling the story for us. He's kind of making his way through, turning the pages so we can see it a little better. And then he's going he's gonna to rise onto the heavens. And it short changes his humanity. Causes us to miss his beautiful desperation, the gritty, beautiful reality of his person. We said that desperation is always a result of desire. And if that's true, if Jesus is desperate enough to see you made whole, then that points to a desire of his. So what is that desire in Jesus? What compelled Jesus to this level of desperation for you and me? Scripture says, for God so loved the world that he sent Jesus. For God so loved the world that you wouldn't perish, but would know eternal life. For God so loved the world. Love. 
The desire that's driving Jesus to these desperate lengths to see you and I set free is love. It's a love beyond love we can ever imagine. It's a love that you would not perish. It's a love that you would truly live. It's a love that you would know hope and awakening and freedom. It's a love that you would be able to live in grace, not just be rescued, but rescued and set free. That you would know life and what he said, not just any life, but the kind of life that feels like overabundance that you cannot help but flow out of. This is the love we were shown, and it's the kind of love we are charged to carry. I said I don't like the, the idea of heaven being a long street of mansions with privacy fences and hot tubs in the back, because I don't think Jesus had that in mind. The reason I don't like it, though, is because it sets us up in a moral rat race, and we've done nothing more than exchange our consumeristic rat race for a moral rat race, and we're just trying to be better and better so we can earn better and better so we can have a better and better address in heaven, and that's not what Jesus came to do. That's not what heaven is about. That's not what this whole life is about. Life is not about building a better moral resume to get a better mansion in heaven. Life is about becoming people with dirty fingernails. That's the picture on display here. That Jesus does a proactive healing. And then in the very next story, what we're told is that his friends bring a proactive healing for their buddy. That the response to Jesus proactively healing is us turning around and going, how do we bring our friends to proactive healing? And what did it cost them? They had to get their fingernails dirty. They weren't making their way into a more moralistic, beautiful place. The Pharisees couldn't believe it. They were the good churchgoers who went, oh, look at these guys digging through the ceiling. And it was the guys that we need to be paying attention to, the guys that we need to be more like, or the guys digging through the ceiling. Jesus didn't come to make you more morally beautiful. He came to give you dirty fingernails to inspire you to live a life that when your day comes, when you're sitting in a room like this, in a pine box with all your friends circled up around you. The stories that will be told aren't about how you're a really moral person who might have a nice mansion one day up in the old suite by and by. The stories will be told about your dirty fingernails, how you never hesitated for a desperate act to show love to another. Those are the stories we long to have told about us. Someone who is willing to fight for love, to fight for another, to sacrifice, to take on pain. What will you go through for those you love? And so is the question that we need to have a greater willingness and desperation, or is the question that we need to have a greater desire? A desire outside of ourselves, not to earn our way into some sort of fake faith, but to have a faith that's defined by the grit under our nails. What roof would you claw through? Who in your life needs to be dropped into the feet of Jesus? And what would it cost you to get him there? Who in your life needs to be dropped at the feet of Jesus and what would it cost you to get them there? Reputation, relationship, your dignity. Would it be worth it? What cost would you bear? What cost would you be willing to gin up the courage and act and fight and hope and pray to love someone with abandon? The only Jesus that someone else may ever meet, as it has been said, might be the Jesus you represent with your desperate and abundant love. That God has invited us in his beautiful sovereignty into this participatory redemption of the world. That you and I are then given the beautiful task of going out and making him known. Trusting him with the outcome, but getting our fingernails dirty nonetheless. Because desperation is a result of desire, and we have to pray that our desire might grow. Not that we would be more morally clean, but that we would be a lovingly dirty people. 
When I think about who I want to be when we're Covenant Church and we're celebrating our 50th anniversary next year, when I think of Covenant Church celebrating their 100th anniversary 50 years from now, I hope this is a community marked by being lovingly dirty, being willing to get in the grit and the grime to dig through roofs so that others might know this incredible, abundant love. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, give us desire. Wake us up from the moral rat race. Wake us up from the clawing uh, for ourselves. We're seeking to be better so that we might have a resume that you would look at fondly and instead, Father, focus us back on Jesus. Remind us that you see us to be beautiful because you see us through him. Lord, may that freedom of not having to work for what you've given us, not having to fight our way for grace, may that freedom allow us to use our energies, to use our fingernails to claw through roofs for others to find our days being marked by our desire to see others set free, to see our friends and our loved ones know you better. Lord, find us to be the people in the room peering around the corner to get another look at you, to get another peek at you, to hear your words a little bit more clearly. God, give us curiosity in the depths of our souls that there's always more we can hear from you. There's always more we can know about you, but not that we might be holier in a moral sense, but that we might be made holier in a literal way of living. Father, build us to be your people. Give us courage to act when others will not. Give us a fearlessness. Father, our prayer, my confession is that it's not always true of me, and our prayer is that it can be, and we want you to help us get there. Father, let us not be morally clean, but lovingly dirty. Lead us to a place where we can continue to make you known. God, we love you. We thank you for Jesus, for his example, for his character, for his words, for his teaching, for his healing, and ultimately for his salvation that he offers us through his cross and his resurrection. God, we love you. Thank you. Amen.